Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be studying chapter 14 in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This chapter is all about cultivating the healthy mental states of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. These four mental states are requirements in order to get to enlightenment. I don't usually tend to talk about the teachings in terms of requirements, but in terms of getting to enlightenment, somebody would not be able to attain enlightenment without cultivating these four mental states. These four mental states are essentially prerequisites. As you're walking this path, they are going to produce certain wholesome benefits in the mind. And what they're doing is they're actually antidoting certain pollution or certain unwholesome qualities in the mind. So this chapter, chapter 14, is probably one of the shortest chapters in the entire book, but it's utterly important. And the reason why it's so short is because essentially all I do is I explain what the four mental states are, I explain what they're actually antidoting, and I explain how to cultivate them, which is the same things I'm going to do today, except you guys are going to get to ask questions and we can use examples and we can talk about them and discuss how to actually apply these in daily life. Because it's one thing to understand what these are, understanding what they're actually antidoting in terms of what are the unwholesome qualities that are moving out of the mind and how to actually cultivate them. But the real part that we should make some time to get to today is how do we actually apply these in practice on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis because that's what you really ultimately need to get to. And if we don't get to that today, that's fine. But the talk that I'm going to share is going to be actually quite short because it's such straightforward information. The vast majority of this class is all going to be based on your questions and what it is that you're looking to understand. So let's be sure that you understand what these four healthy mental states are, what they're antidoting, and how to cultivate them. And as we do, and you start understanding that, feel free to ask questions about, you know, would this be an appropriate way to apply it in our life? Or in this situation, would this be helpful for that? And we can talk about all those kind of examples to help you walk away with this understanding of these four healthy mental states and how to actually apply them. We refer to these four healthy mental states as the Brahma Viharas. These Brahma Viharas are what the Buddha taught in terms of cultivating these healthy mental states. And remember, Brahmin or Brahma was referring to these priests that existed in 
the region of the world that the Buddha was teaching in. He was born in what we call Nepal today, and he was in that area as well as what we call Northeast India today. That whole region of the world is where the Buddha spent his time, and there were Brahmin from the Hindu tradition that were priests who were teaching people how to live a better life, but a lot of what they were teaching was based on superstition or worship and ceremonies. But they did have certain aspects of their teachings that really were part of this path. And when the Buddha taught his path and he observed these aspects of the Brahmin tradition, he knew that this was part of the path. And he taught these Brahma Viharas or these healthy mental states that we need to cultivate as part of his teachings. So today we're going to be discussing these and sharing the details with you so that you can walk away understanding how to apply them in practice. The first Brahma Vihara that we'll talk about is called loving kindness. There's also Pali words that people use to refer to these Brahma Viharas. I don't use the Pali language because it just really is kind of like one more obstacle for somebody to overcome in order to actually learn and understand and practice these teachings and thus get the results of these teachings. But you may see people refer to this as metta, M-E-T-T-A. And I put that in the book, so you would have it in the book, but I just don't have it in the slides because it's really not so important nowadays that anybody understands Pali. As long as you understand it in English, that's the way that you need to learn and reflect and practice these teachings. So loving kindness or metta is this active goodwill towards all beings without judgment. You know, sometimes we only are interested in the unenlightened state to have politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respectfulness towards people that we deem appropriate or we deem nice or kind or friendly. And then these people over here that we don't really get along with very well, we kind of scowl at them or we kind of look down on them or we are a little bit rough or harsh with them or we just have this annoyance and dislike. But what loving kindness is about is not about judging whether somebody's good or bad or whether they deserve your loving kindness because practicing loving kindness isn't about the other person, so to speak. Even though it is, it really isn't. It's really about your own practice. This whole entire path to enlightenment is about your practice. So if there's one group of people that we tend to get along with and we can practice loving kindness with them, okay, that's great. But if we have these other people, even if it's one or two that we don't practice loving kindness with, then the mind is still not yet enlightened. You've got to get to the point where you're practicing this active goodwill towards all beings without judging anybody that they deserve your loving kindness or not, but instead that you just have this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. Human beings, animals, and all the other realms as well is that you just have a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. If you remember back to the Eightfold Path, that second step of right intention. In right intention, there's three aspects to it. One is the intention of relinquishment or letting things go. The second one is practicing non-ill will. Non-ill will is just another way to say goodwill. 
And then there's the practice of right intention. The third aspect of that is practicing harmlessness. So these two of practicing non-ill will or good will and practicing harmlessness, this all comes from the practice of loving kindness. By cultivating loving kindness and filling the mind up and permeating the mind with loving kindness, you can then practice that in daily life with people around you. And this helps to remedy or antidote the unwholesome quality of anger, hatred, ill will, and all the lesser versions of that. So if you get irritated when you're around a particular person, or if you get annoyed, or you even just have the slightest little dislike towards one particular person or a group of people, what antidotes that is loving kindness, by practicing loving kindness. But you first have to cultivate it in the mind. And the way that we do that is with loving kindness meditation. This is something that we teach as part of this program on Wednesdays, is to ensure that we're doing loving kindness meditation as part of this program, but then you doing it as part of your daily practice so that you're filling up the mind with loving kindness, it's permeating in the mind, you're soaking the mind in this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, so that then you can go out into the world and you can practice this goodwill towards all beings without judgment. And if you're able to do that, then the mind is going to feel more light. It's going to feel less burdened because it's a real burden to walk around with a certain group of people that you get along with and that you show politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respectfulness to. But then there's kind of like this list in the mind of people who we don't get along with and then it's kind of a burden to carry that around. And then when you see somebody that is on that list, you kind of have to switch your mind to being angry or harsh or upset or kind of avoiding them and not even talking to them, right? This is a real burden to carry this around where when you can let all that go, when you can let go of the anger, hatred, ill will, the irritation, the annoyance, the dislike, and you can just have a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, when you have active goodwill towards all beings without judgment, it doesn't matter who you're talking to, person A, person B, person C, you can just be loving and kind with everybody. Your practice is permanent. Your life practice is permanent because the condition of the mind becomes more and more permanent, much like enlightenment. And in order to get to enlightenment, the mind becomes more and more stable, more and more steady, because it doesn't have to be worried about who am I with and who's around me and deciding who to be harsh with and who to be friendly with. You can just be the same with everybody. You can just be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful with everybody because that's how you are as a person. And you wouldn't even dream of being any other way because you know that by being harsh or aggressive or hostile or argumentative or disparaging, all of that is just going to produce unwholesomeness in the world. It's going to harm others. So therefore, it's going to harm you. So as you cultivate this loving kindness in the mind, you start coming to the realization that you're not interested in harming anyone through your intentions. And then as part of right speech, the Buddha puts in there as one of the five factors of well-spoken speech that we should speak with a mind of loving kindness. So loving kindness actually plugs into the Eightfold Path at 
right intention and at right speech. But one could really actually say the entire path to enlightenment is all about loving kindness. Likewise, compassion, when we get to that one, because the more that you focus on training your own mind and purifying your mind and eliminating pollution from the mind, it's the most loving and the most kind thing you could ever do for the world is focusing on your own practice, eliminating any pollution or defilements in the mind and being loving and kind with all beings and practicing this active goodwill towards all beings without judgment. So while there's certain places that loving kindness plugs into the Eightfold Path, even when you're practicing right action and you're choosing not to harm people through your bodily actions, that's an act of loving kindness. Or when you choose to have a certain livelihood under right livelihood that doesn't cause harm to others, that's a practice of loving kindness. By practicing right effort and right mindfulness and right concentration and all the other things that we do on this path, even sitting down to meditate and training your mind to eliminate the defilements and the pollution of the mind, that's even an act of loving kindness for yourself and for other beings. So loving kindness is really, really important as part of this path to enlightenment. And the Buddha talks about it frequently throughout his teachings, not just part of the Eightfold Path, but part of other aspects of his teachings. He talks about loving kindness in quite a bit of detail in various parts of his teachings. So what we're doing here is we're eliminating this anger, hatred, ill will, and all those lesser versions, and we're arising this active goodwill towards all beings without judgment, having this genuine interest for all beings to be well. It's almost like a toothpaste. If you were squeezing the toothpaste out, you're kind of squeezing out all that unwholesomeness of anger, hatred, and ill will in those lesser versions, and you're filling up that void with loving kindness. Or the other way you can think about it is you're bringing in this loving kindness through loving kindness meditation. And as you bring in this loving kindness through loving kindness meditation and practicing it in daily life, you're kind of pushing out all that anger, hatred, ill will, irritation, annoyance, and dislike that you might have for certain people or certain situations that you're encountering. So this is a really transformative practice, doing loving kindness meditation on a regular basis and then practicing it in daily life not just the meditation itself, but then in daily life, being polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to everyone around you, no matter what, no matter whether they're the president of your country or they're one of the people who are considered to be of a lower status, you still are just as loving and kind with the president of your country as you are anybody else anywhere. So that's really important to develop. This second one is compassion. And the way that I describe that is it's concern for the misfortune of others. When you see others are having challenges or having struggles or they're lacking what they need is having concern for them and being sure that you have a real interest in seeing them be well, back to loving kindness. These two are a little bit interconnected where loving kindness is the active role of practicing goodwill. Compassion is just having concern for the misfortune. But you've really got to find the middle with both of these and particularly with compassion. Because if every single person you saw that had problems 
and that we're struggling in this life, if you were so absorbed in seeing the world be completely peaceful and you were attached to the world being a certain way, then you're holding on to it so tightly, you might be worried about the world. You might be worried about the misfortunes of others. And that would be discontentedness. But on the other hand, you might be so lackadaisical or indifferent to other people's suffering and misfortunes that you just don't really care. And that would be the other side of the equation. And neither of those are in the middle. What compassion is, is compassion is this concern. You can have concern for someone's misfortune without falling apart every time you see a homeless person or every time you see an orphan child or every time you see an animal that is in really dire straits and being mistreated. Because if you did that, then your mind would have discontentedness because you're worried about this being, right? You're just so worried about them. But then also, if you saw somebody in dire straits and you saw homeless people or an orphan or you saw an animal that was being mistreated and you're just like, oh, well, that's their karma, right? Like that's indifference and that's not an enlightened mind either. So the middle here that the Buddha is sharing is the concern for the misfortune of others. And by cultivating that in the mind, what it does is it eliminates this indifference it eliminates this worry and anxiety that someone might have about the world. There's not really a meditation to cultivate this like there is in loving kindness. But the way that you cultivate this is through right mindfulness. When you're aware of the worry and anxiety arising, you have that right mindfulness or that awareness of mind. When you identify that unwholesome quality arising, then you apply right effort to cut that off and let it go, bringing the mind to the middle. So when you're aware of the worry or anxiety about others' misfortunes and you see that coming into the mind, you may even feel bodily sensations as it's starting to arise. When you observe that, you cut it off and let it go and bring the mind back to the middle, which is concern. Or if you ever notice that you're indifferent about somebody else's suffering and you notice that, then you also apply right effort and you cut that off and you bring the mind to the middle where you have concern for the person. It doesn't mean that you can go out of your way and help all of these people necessarily. You might not be in a position to actively do something about the person's misfortune, but at least you have concern for their misfortune. That's what this Brahma Vihara is about, is that you just have concern not that you're necessarily going to go feed every homeless person in your city because you might not have the resources and the ability to do that. But at least you have concern for the misfortune of others. Let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about these two before we move on to the next two. The way that you can ask questions is in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. You can put in your questions into the comment section. Our moderators will see that. We have Basam, Manal, and James. They will see that and get your question asked during the class. And those of you in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and then we will be able to have your question asked live or any follow-up question can be live. So let me see what questions you guys have on these two before we move on to the next. I have a question, <clears throat> a question about finding the middle way between 
compassion and indifference. As a person begins on the path and they're developing compassion, do you think it can be typical for a person to experience discontent as a result of that compassion? And then we apply mindfulness and effort to work on that. Do you think that's kind of a common thing as we begin this path? The compassion itself isn't causing the discontentedness. It's the craving desire attachment to wanting to have compassion or the craving desire attachment to the world that's causing the discontentedness. So what happens is sometimes as you're bringing the mind into the middle, you can kind of overshoot the middle and you can go to the other side. Whereas if someone's fairly indifferent and now they realize they need to be compassionate, they typically don't just move right to the middle. They usually swing to the other side and now they have craving, desire, attachment and have this over concern. This is where there is no such thing as a wholesome craving, desire, attachment that even if you have too much compassion, that's still the craving, desire, attachment that's causing the discontentedness. But if you're holding on to that too much, it's going to cause worry and anxiety in the mind. And likewise, if you're craving your own life, you become selfish, you're not interested in helping others and you're indifferent, then that's going to cause discontentedness as well. And typically what happens is you kind of swing from side to side as you're figuring out where the middle is. As you start letting go of certain attachments that you have, oftentimes the mind swings over here to not caring and being indifferent. And that's where that's not the middle either. And you kind of swing like a pendulum and it comes closer and closer and closer and closer to the middle. And then boom, when you get in that middle and you no longer feel and experience discontentedness related to the misfortune of others, then you know where that middle is and you stay locked on it. But yes, what you're saying, James, is people do have a tendency to swing and kind of overshoot this in both directions, but it's actually the craving desire attachment that's causing the discontentedness, not the compassion. And it seems like with other parts of the path, it is important to apply patience to finding that middle because there can be a natural ebbing and blowing between the two. Absolutely. Patience is a big part of this. And also understanding not only patience, but understanding that each relationship in each situation is a bit different. Where some people can maybe overshoot compassion for animals, for example, and they just fall apart and crumble whenever they see something related to harm to animals because they're holding that too tightly. But then let's just say something else. Let's just say uh, maybe a homeless person. Maybe with that particular person, they're like, ah, you know, they're drinking alcohol, they're using drugs, it's their fault, it's their karma, you know, so what? Who cares, right? So you can actually be at a different point in this spectrum of compassion with one group of beings versus another group of beings. So that's why loving kindness here is first in that you need to have this active goodwill towards all beings without judgment, having a genuine interest in all beings be well, and then supplement that and bring together with that the compassion where you have concern for the misfortune of others and knowing where your mind is at any point in time that mindfulness or awareness of mind is so critical because if you observe that you're holding on to animals too tightly then you need to let that go a bit and bring that to the middle and if you're not holding anything at all related to human beings 
and you're maybe indifferent to the misfortune of a human being, then you realize you need to bring that up a little bit. And that's where you can find the middle on all these different topics related to different relationships or different groups of beings that you interact with on a regular basis. With the appropriate level of love and kindness be even essentially across humans and animals and for instance like an insect with a healthy level of loving kindness view each in a similar way essentially yes what you're going to see with the fourth brahma vihara which is equanimity part of that is treating all beings equally and fairly so that that's where if you don't have this judgment with the loving kindness then you treat all beings equally so that you know if you had a mosquito land on you rather than you know smashing it and flicking it off you wouldn't do that to a dog or a cat if a dog or a cat came and brushed up against your arm you wouldn't smash it right but if it was a mosquito or a fly or something like that maybe you would right now maybe that's just where you are in your practice but the way to practice loving kindness and compassion is even with something as small as an insect is blow it off or brush it off and you know just kind of practice not smashing and killing it which also helps you with that first precept of abstaining or refraining from the taking of life living compassionately with all living beings that's part of that first precept the buddha puts compassion into that first precept so if you can practice loving kindness with a mosquito then i'm sure you can practice loving kindness with probably a dog or a cat so that's where if you can get your level of practice all the way to the point where even if now your mind is triggered when a mosquito lands on you to smash it if you can now reprogram that and kind of make a different choice where maybe you blow it off or you swipe it off when you can show a level of loving kindness and compassion to a being that small and a potential being that can actually maybe potentially cause you harm if you can show loving kindness and compassion to that being then it should be easier for you to show it to a dog or a cat or maybe a human being but some people even say that human beings are a lot harder for them to show loving kindness and compassion for because they're sometimes can be harmful and hateful and vindictive and they can say things and do things that are harmful to you and when you receive that harm your natural instinct in the unenlightened mind is to return that harm and be harmful back but that just keeps this rubber ball bouncing around so you've got to get to the point where you can cultivate loving kindness and compassion for this mosquito and then you can also do that with human beings and other beings as well thank you david we have a question on youtube from ia how can comma be related to compassion and maintaining the middle ground on it? Yeah, so where gamma comes in with all of these is that by you practicing the unwholesome aspects of the mind that we're talking about here, the unwholesome quality of anger, hatred, ill will, irritation, annoyance, dislike, this is going to come out through your intention, speech, and your actions, and it's going to drive people away from you, and you're going to find it very difficult to have relationships your personal and professional relationships are going to struggle. And it's going to be a real burden to carry that anger and hatred ill will around. As I mentioned, you have to figure out with judgment 
Who do you treat well and who do you not treat well? And this is going to burden the mind and make it real difficult for you. And you're going to have real struggle and harshness in your life. So by eliminating that anger, hatred, ill will, and all the lesser versions of irritation, annoyance, and just treating all beings loving and kind, respectful, and all these good things without judgment, then your gamma is now that you're practicing this good, wholesome quality of mind, this healthy mental state, now people will be more than pleased to be around you because you're practicing this active goodwill towards all beings, so you're never harming anyone. So people feel very comfortable to be around you. So if you find yourself in business meetings or at parent-teacher conferences or at sports games or you're just moving about in your community and you're smiling and you're cheerful and you're not complaining and you're helpful to people and you're willing to help your neighbor pick up their trash they got blown all over the yard even though you're on your way to work or if you notice that as you're driving down the street a child falls off their bike and you stop your car and you get out and help them up or if there's an accident on the side of the road and you decide to pull over and help this person, as you're cultivating all of this, you're gonna be cultivating this genuine interest and actually practicing it. Not looking out to see who's watching, but you're just gonna do it. And as you do, more and more people are going to be very pleased to be around you. And you're gonna see that opportunities are gonna open up for you, both personally and professionally, because you're no longer being angered, hateful, hostile, aggressive, or irritated or annoyed with people. Instead, you're just always permanently loving and kind to all beings. And the same thing with this compassion, that everything you do and everything you say is always from a place of concern for the misfortune of others. And people observe that and people hear that. And even though they don't know the natural law of gamma, everybody functions based on the natural law of gamma. So when you become a more loving, kind, and compassionate person, no longer having this worry and anxiety, this indifference, then people observe those qualities in you and they're like, wow, you know, Barbara is just always so wonderful. She's always interested in the well-being of others. She has concern for the misfortune of others. Now, they might not use the same language, right? But you'll see that opportunities, both personally and professionally, are going to open up for you because people are going to be very comfortable to be around you because you're not causing harm to anybody. Hello, sure. We have a question on Zoom from Holly. She says, I understand that being able to love all beings comes gradually by doing loving kindness meditation. Is it normal to think this logically in the mind, but notice that the emotions, feelings, and sometimes actions not match up with the interest to love all beings? I am often surprised when feeling of ill will come up, even though I don't contemplate these thoughts. Yeah, this is where the Eightfold Path really helps us, right? Because it helps us in a number of different ways, but those intentions, the speech and the actions aren't always in sync. When they are in sync with every aspect of the Eightfold Path, as well as the Brahma Viharas, then this person is practicing really, really well, and you're going to experience good, wholesome results from it. But when those things aren't in sync, if you have really wholesome intentions, but when you move to speech, 
you're not speaking that way, then people have difficulties seeing and observing your intentions because all they're hearing is this harsh speech, maybe, for example. So this is why the Buddha breaks down the Eightfold Path the way he does into individual components so you can see that we have to purify each individual part of the Eightfold Path. We have to purify our intentions and he gives those three different aspects of right intention that need to be purified and that purifies the mind in terms of intentions. But then with that, we need to purify our speech with those five factors of well-spoken speech and then doing that, at least our intentions and speech are in sync. And then, of course, our bodily actions as well. So by having all of these things in sync, then people can really feel this loving kindness and compassion come through because now you're practicing the teachings very well. The Buddha called this uh, walking the straight way or walking the upright way, right? Not with arrogance, not with ego, not with pride. I call it walking with wisdom and a smile, that you know that the wholesome thing to do is to practice these teachings, practice them well, and even though you might not be there right now, you just put in your best effort and you just keep working your way up to the ideal. If the Buddhist teachings are a ceiling, you're just constantly working your way up to the ideal. And wherever you see that your teachings and your practice haven't come together and you've maybe fell a little bit short of that, then you just take note of that have patience with yourself and now keep working your way towards that so that in the next situation, you will improve. The Buddha called this thinking and pondering. So once you learn his teachings and then now you're starting to have the same experiences you had three years ago, for example, but now you have this basis of teachings in which to think and ponder whether or not you are practicing well in accordance with the teachings. And as you think and ponder over a situation that you're about to have, a situation that you're currently having, a certain conversation that you're currently having, or a conversation or a situation that you already had and you're reflecting on it, you're going to think and ponder about these teachings, not just these, but all of them, and figure out which areas could you have improved. And then also think about the areas that you did well, because then the areas that you did well, then you support those, you encourage those, you continue to improve that about your practice. In the areas where you feel like you didn't do well, this is where you aim to improve and you look to improve. So if you've ever written an email and then you've read it two or three times, maybe even hit save and waited two or three days and then reread it, this is you, before you actually do something, trying to think and ponder whether or not you're practicing right speech here. And let's just say you had a bit of craving, you had a bit of anger, and you didn't do what I just said, but you hit send. And then a couple of days later, you come back and read the email and you're like, oh, I could have done that better. That was anger or that was ego or that was something else. By you reviewing your communication, both written or chat or even conversations that you have live, by thinking about them before you have them, having these teachings in the mind while you're having the conversation, and then also reflecting on it afterwards, by doing this thinking and pondering, it will help you to build your wisdom. And there's a certain point of time where your mind might be almost obsessively doing this. 
And the Buddha talks about this too, how the mind becomes obsessed with this path. But that's kind of part of it. And what happens is over time, the mind soaks into these teachings more and more and you build your wisdom through this thinking and pondering. And then eventually it becomes so effortless and easy for you to practice these teachings all the time. You don't even have to think about it because you've done a lot of thinking and pondering over six months or a year or two years of reflecting on these various situations that you're in and you've figured out where the middle is and you've been able to now develop this wisdom to now effortlessly make decisions and this is where your practice becomes very easy and much more seamless and you're able to really ebb and flow with what's going on on a day-to-day basis and your mind is operating as a natural instinct to practice these teachings rather than practice the way that we were in the unenlightened state when the mind is defiled and has this pollution because we tend to fall back on those habits when we don't have anything else. When we don't know what we don't know, we tend to speak harsh. We tend to be aggressive. We tend to have an ego. We tend to be prideful and arrogant because we didn't know any better. But once you learn these teachings and you start practicing them and you start thinking and pondering about them and you start soaking in the wisdom to practice them regularly, then it just becomes effortless. And that's why this is gradual training, gradual progress and gradual results, because you have to gradually learn the teachings, gradually implement them. You're going to make a bunch of mistakes. And as you do, you just aim to improve and just get better and better each day. Hey, Manel has a question. So let's go to her. Sure. Hi, teacher David. So what is uh, the meaning or the definition of indifference as you use it here? I think of it as someone who's uncaring or has no interest in the misfortune of others, just lackadaisical. That's the way I think of it. Okay. So in the context of guarding your six senses, if you are exercising guarding any of your six senses and you're is you know you're interacting with the outside world um, that can easily come off as indifference um, it can come off as a form of indifference so what do you describe what word do you attribute to when you are interacting with the outside world with exercising guarding of your six senses. So this is where the mind has to find that sweet spot. And this is where I was talking about how it swings from side to side. If we're used to holding on to things really tightly, and that's what we're used to on certain subjects, when we start to let go of that and we start to eliminate that craving desire attachment, there's a tendency for the mind to swing to the other side because it doesn't really know where the middle is. It hasn't found it yet. It doesn't know what that feels like. So it tends to swing to the other side. So as you're guarding those doorways to discontentedness or those six sense bases, you might feel indifferent in the mind and people around you might perceive you that way as well. And that's just because you haven't found the middle yet. The solution here is to find the middle. Once you find the middle of learning where that concern for the misfortune of others is, and you can maintain that 
on an ongoing consistent basis, that's what the solution is. So you should continue to guard your doorways to discontentedness and guard those six sense spaces and know that the mind's going to swing a bit and you're going to feel a bit indifferent maybe in certain situations because you've never felt the way it feels to be in the middle. You've been maybe holding on to something so tightly over here. And when you let go and you start to let go, it might swing to the other side. But it's just like that pendulum. It's going to slowly lose its energy and the mind's going to eventually submit and it's going to be dead on in the middle. And once you feel that in any particular topic, you'll feel the joy. You'll feel the joy come into the mind and you'll know that you've hit the middle because you feel that bit of joy. And when you're over here, you're feeling indifferent. There's still a bit of ickiness. There's still a bit of discontentedness there. When you're over here having the craving, desire, attachment on this side, there's a lot of discontentedness. But even over here with the indifference, you're not going to quite feel right with that. But once you get to the middle and you hit it, you're going to feel the joy come into the mind. And you almost feel sometimes you'll have what the Buddha called maturing and release where after you move the mind on a particular topic from indifference, you actually feel the release from the mind and you'll feel the joy permeate into the mind because you finally got the middle. But that doesn't mean you've got the middle on every single topic related to compassion. It's just that one particular topic. So when you hit that middle on any particular topic, you'll feel the joy, you might feel the release. You might also notice that concentration, focus, clarity of mind start to come into the mind very strongly. You might feel this radiance or this brightness in the mind when you hit that middle on any particular topic. And that's how you know, ah, there's the middle. It feels right. The mind is at ease. There's no more stress. There's no more anxiety. I can feel the release of this discontentedness. And that's where you know you're in the middle. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, uh, we have a question from Holly. She says, is it indifference if it is a situation that cannot be changed? For example, if I see an animal that has been hit by a car and is dead on the side of the road, I used to feel deep pain for the animal. And the fear and pain it experienced when it died in this way. I have eliminated this discontentedness by thinking that this happened because it was this animal's karma. Is that indifference? If so, how should I view this situation? That's not indifference. That's seeing things clearly. That, like you said, you couldn't do anything about it. You weren't even there when it happened. That is just acknowledging and seeing clearly like this animal died because it was in the street we built a road through here and this is its normal travel pattern and it got hit and it's just a matter of cause and effect and action and result indifference would be you are driving and following another car the car hits the animal and you're just like oh well and you just keep on going it doesn't mean you have to stop right you might not even be able to stop you might have kids in the car you might be on the way to school there's no requirement that you have to stop but if you, you saw the animal get hit and you're just like oh well whatever and you just kept on going that would be indifference like i don't really care but also you wouldn't want to fall apart just because you saw an animal get hit too 
So this is where the Buddha doesn't tell you exactly what to do in any given situation because there's too many variables involved. In one situation, you see animal get hit, you might not be able to stop because you're on your way somewhere, you have kids in the car. If you stopped, the kids wouldn't have anybody to take care of them. Maybe they're young kids. Who knows what might be going on? Maybe you're on the way to the hospital with somebody in the car that needs medical attention. But in other cases, you might see an animal get hit. It's bright out. There's a place to pull over safely. You feel that this animal is an animal that you could probably help and you choose to pull over. And in either one of those situations, you can still practice compassion. The compassion isn't about your action, about what you necessarily do. The compassion is about what's in the mind. Whereas if you saw the misfortune of other beings and you just didn't care either way, then that would be indifference. And also if you had worry or anxiety, then that would be holding that too tightly. So you've got to decide in each given situation of how you're going to respond or not. But the concern here is just a concern. It's what's in the mind and how you think about and you process this situation. That you don't just blow it off as no big deal, but you also don't hold it so tightly that it causes worry and anxiety. We have a follow-up, David, from Michael on the concept of indifference. Mm -hmm. What is the difference between indifference and equanimous? I noticed that's where I'm at, just staying neutral and unattached. So basically, I should just start caring? Care is a good word, Michael. That's a really good word to sit with and cultivate your care. Care and concern. That's what you need. Equanimity is something very different, which we're going to talk about next. Equanimity is evenness of temper, calmness of mind, especially in difficult situations, as well as treating all beings fair and equal. Equanimity is not indifference. That's completely different. So the word care that you use there, that's where you would like to be. That's the middle. Thank you, David. Those are all the questions we have for now. Okay. Let's move into the next two of the Brahma Viharas. The third Brahma Vihara is called sympathetic joy. This sympathetic joy is a feeling of joy for other success, even if you didn't contribute to it. Where if you see somebody get a new house, oh, that's wonderful for you, even though their house is bigger than yours, right? Wonderful, you're pleased for them. Or they got a new promotion. Even if that was the same job that you were going for, both of you guys applied for the promotion at work, but somebody else got it instead of you. You need to practice sympathetic joy where you can feel joy for the success of others, even if you didn't contribute to it. What this does is this eradicates envy, jealousy, and pride because these are unwholesome qualities that are going to be detrimental. Whereas if you're in a work environment and several people apply for a promotion and you didn't get it, and you had envy, jealousy towards somebody who did get it, then that's going to come through in your intention, your speech, and your actions. And you're going to find it very difficult, not only with that individual, but other people are going to sense that about you too. And you're going to find it difficult and you're going to struggle in relationships because of that envy and jealousy. And then likewise, if you have this pride or this arrogance where other people are being successful and you're kind of looking down on their success with arrogance and thinking that they're below you and kind of diminishing their success. If you're diminishing other people's success due to you 
having a desire to maintain your own pride, then this is going to be detrimental to your mind as well in your practice. You're going to find that as you start executing your intentions, your speech, and your actions behind envy, jealousy, and pride, that people are going to be less and less comfortable with having you involved in certain projects because they know that you're always going to be getting jealous if things don't go your way or you don't get the limelight, so to speak. So wherever you see somebody that is successful with anything, anything at all, whether you contributed to it or not, you need to apply this sympathetic joy where you can just have joy for others' success no matter what, no matter what they're involved in and no matter what they're doing. If, if they're pleased with what they've accomplished, then be pleased for them. Uh, it doesn't mean that you need to agree with what they've done or what they're doing, but if they've done something wholesome and they're have succeeded in life in any particular aspect of life, whether it's getting a new husband, a boyfriend, girlfriend, whether they've had a child, even though you might have wanted one, but they've gotten one, or a promotion, or a new house, or a new car, anything whatsoever, then just be joyful for other people's success. And don't turn that into, now that Barbara got a new house, I want a new house, right? Because that's where craving desire attachment comes in is that if we flip this over and we see somebody else be successful and they get a new car, a new house, or a new promotion or something else, just because they've got it, our craving may arise and then we feel like we want it too. But instead, practice this sympathetic joy where you can just be joyful for their success because that's their life and that's something that they were interested in accomplishing and they have accomplished it and be joyful and pleased for their success. The way that you cultivate this in the mind is that wherever you see jealousy or envy or this pride arising around people's success, Whenever people are being successful at anything in your life and you observe other people's success, if you feel any envy, jealousy, or pride arising, cut that off, right? So when you use right mindfulness or awareness of mind and you see and identify this unwholesome quality arise, envy, jealousy, pride, you know that's something that's going to lead to unwholesome results, cut that off either in the bodily sensations or as it's entering into feelings in the mind, cut that off and it gets easier when you're practicing breathing mindfulness meditation and then arise this sympathetic joy. Even if your mind doesn't truly feel it, even if you can get the words into it, this is one of the questions James usually asks me, right? Fake it until you make it. That's one of James's things that he'll usually ask me. If that's what you need to do with sympathetic joy, you do it, right? If you put in a request to be promoted and somebody else did too at work and they got the job and you didn't and they swing around and say, hey, by the way, David, I just got that promotion. Even though inside you really wanted it and this is the first thing that you heard of it, just right away, oh, I'm pleased for you. Even if inside it's just eating you up that you didn't get that promotion because you're craving desire attachment, you wanted it so badly but you've got to traverse that, you've got to transcend that, you've got to overcome that. And if it's just fake it till you make it, like James says, then do it. Because that's better than going to the opposite and like, well, why did you get the job? What about me? I applied for that too. 
as soon as you do that, that's where the unwholesomeness is coming out from your speech and it's going to produce unwholesome results. So just be pleased for other people's success and then you'll find that you will actually have more and more success because you're pleased for others' success. You're not having this envy, jealousy, and pride. There's other ways to cut off pride too that we're going to talk about when we get to chapter 16, but this is just one aspect of helping you with any kind of pride. And then equanimity. This one's very different than the ones we've talked about so far. Equanimity is mental calmness, composure, evenness of temper, especially in a difficult situation. This is one part of it. And then we're going to talk about the other part in a moment. This mental calmness, composure, evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations, is that whenever anything's going on, you need to be in the middle. You need to be calm, patient, evenness of temper, right? If you get a phone call and you know your mom's on the phone and you run to the phone and want to hurry up and talk to mom, that's because of craving, desire, attachment. Or if your relatives have come to visit you or your partner has come home from work and you run to go meet them, this is the mind having craving, desire, attachment. And there we can oftentimes fall and trip and hurt ourselves and all kinds of other unfortunate things can happen because of those pleasant feelings arising in the mind. The mind doesn't have this mental composure, this calmness, this evenness of temper, right? But then also this part about especially in difficult situations. Let's say you get a call that your child is injured at school. Or let's say you get a call that your partner was involved in an accident, a car accident or a motorbike accident. Or say that you find out that a relative has passed away or died or they're in the hospital with COVID. If the mind goes into worry and anxiety, in all of those situations, you're going to find it more difficult to access your wisdom and make wise decisions to improve the situation. So in the situation where your child or your life partner gets injured and you find out about it by telephone, if your mind becomes unraveled and you jump in the car and you bolt across town to hurry up and get there, you might actually be causing yourself more problems because of the unwholesomeness of the mind being shaken up and unsteady you might actually cause worse problems because you now maybe you get in an accident as you're bolting across town. So the way that the Buddha is teaching you here is especially in difficult situations, maintain your mental composure, maintain that calmness, because with a calm mind, you can maintain your mindfulness or awareness of mind. With mindfulness, you can maintain your concentration with your concentration, then you have access to wisdom. And making wise decisions is going to require you to have wisdom. But when your mind becomes shaken up and uncalm, you're not going to have awareness of mind. That's going to be completely down the drain. And when you don't have awareness of mind, you're going to lack concentration. All your focus and clarity of mind is going to be gone. And therefore, you're not going to be able to access the wisdom in order to improve the situation. Because once you get that phone call about your partner or your child being in a difficult situation, you would like to have clarity of mind to be able to give the doctor 
or the nurse or whomever some clear instructions of what they can do in order to remedy the situation. Or if you're driving across town in order to show up somewhere where your injured relative is, you would like to have calmness, composure, evenness of temper so that you can start taking in information from the doctors and nurses to understand what happened and what's going on. And then with that wisdom, make some wise decisions to improve the situation so it doesn't get worse. And you can do that when you have a calm mind. When there's calmness, there's going to be mindfulness. And when there's mindfulness, there's going to be concentration. And when you have concentration, you can access your wisdom. But when you allow that calmness, that composure, that evenness of temper in difficult situations to degrade and fall down, now the whole domino effect happens. You're lacking awareness of mind, lacking concentration, and you're going to lack wisdom. And you're going to end up making decisions that can potentially turn the situation from bad to worse. So this is why equanimity is so important, that you always maintain this calmness and composure. Then the second part of equanimity is treating everyone impartially. Let's say that you live in a neighborhood and there's lots of different children that are playing in your area or in your house. We should treat all of them the same as if they're our own children. You can think of all beings as being your relatives. So if somebody's child is in your home or outside your home and they fall down and they get injured, take care of that child in the same exact way that you would somebody else. Or if there's people who are part of certain groups that you don't necessarily agree with their cause or you don't agree with what they're standing for, you should still treat them impartially. Even if somebody shows up with hateful things in their mind, hateful emblems on their clothing, hateful markings on their body, or even you observe them being hateful towards other people. Just because they're being hateful, we shouldn't treat other people hateful. We need to remain impartial and make sure that we treat all beings fairly. Now, sometimes that's easier said than done, especially if you're just starting out on this practice. But the more that you train the mind with meditation and the entire Eightfold Path, this gets easier and easier. So if you're observing that you're treating some children or some people in one way and other people another way, you need to improve that. You need to just observe that that's what you're doing. And as you do, then improve your practice and improve your decisions so that you're treating everyone equally and impartially. And this is what's going to lead to letting go and eliminating restlessness, worry, anxiety, overactive mind, arrogance, and ego. Now, these different unwholesome qualities get eradicated through different aspects of equanimity. Because there's two aspects of equanimity, there's two aspects to the unwholesome qualities. This restlessness, worry, anxiety, and overactive mind, this comes in when the mind is not calm, composed, have evenness of temper, and especially in difficult situations. The mind's going to be restless. It's going to be worried. It's going to be anxious. It's going to be overactive. That's the opposite of what equanimity is. 
So equanimity by practicing mental calmness, composure, and evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations, it's going to remedy the restlessness, worry, anxiety, and overactive mind. By treating everyone impartially and fairly, this is going to help you to get rid of any kind of arrogance or ego. Because if we have children, for example, and we think our children are better than other children, and we go around with arrogance, and we treat our children one way, and we treat everyone else's children another way, then that arrogance and ego is going to be experienced by other people, and then we're going to find it difficult to have relationships with people. It's going to put a strain on our personal and professional relationships. So this arrogance and this ego is going to come out as we treat different people different ways. So instead, we should always make efforts, not only with children, but with animals, with our coworkers, with our neighbors, is treat everyone fairly and treat everyone equally. This is kind of back to our elementary school days. I don't know if you guys grew up this way, but I had a particular teacher in class that if I was chewing gum, I had to make sure I had enough gum for everybody in the class. The teacher wouldn't allow us to chew gum unless we had a piece for everybody in the class because she was interested in having everybody be treated the same. Maybe in your class, you couldn't chew gum at all. But this one second grade class, our teacher's rule was, if you're going to eat a piece of candy, you need to have a piece of candy for everyone in the entire room, including her too. So what we would do is if we were interested in eating candy or a muffin or a donut or something, and it was outside of our normal lunch period, we would make sure we had enough for everybody in the class. That's treating everyone fairly and impartially. So think about that as you're interacting with children, with coworkers, because if you bring a milkshake in for your favorite coworker and there's three other coworkers who don't get a milkshake, think about the gamma from that, right? If you're not treating everyone impartially and you're only showing favoritism to this one coworker and you're always bringing them something, but you don't ever bring something for anyone else, this is going to lead to unwholesome results. Or at one time when I was a business owner, we owned massage businesses and I would come in and I would get a massage from the same employee all the time because she just did a really great massage and it was perfect for me. And I knew I would always get the same exact massage and I enjoyed her massage. But it came to me through the manager that hey, the other employees are feeling jealous because you always go to the same person and you never get a massage with the other employees, right? So you've got to have awareness of mind here about all your interactions, whether you're a parent, whether you're a employer, like a boss, whether you're a neighbor. When you're doing things, you have to always be sure you're doing things impartially and you're treating all people fairly. And the way that you cultivate this is the same way of the last two is having that awareness of mind, identifying whenever restlessness, worry, anxiety, and overactive mind is arising due to a difficult situation. When a difficult situation happens, as soon as a difficult situation happens, something should trigger in your mind, remain calm, remain composed, evenness of temper, because that's what's going to benefit you. So whenever a difficult situation arises, there needs to be almost a switch that turns on the calmness, composure, 
evenness of temper. And as you do that more and more, you're going to find that you're always that way. You're always going to be calm and composed. But initially, as you develop this mental quality, this healthy mental state, you're going to have to have almost like a switch where whenever a difficult situation happens, you click a switch and then you bring in the calmness, composure and evenness of temper. And then likewise, whenever you see arrogance or ego or you're treating people impartially, you have to have awareness of mind that that's happening and then bring in the wholesome quality of equanimity and start treating people equally. So let's see what questions you guys have here about these two, sympathetic joy and equanimity. Would it be appropriate to say that there's a middle way in regards to treating everyone equally? For instance, with our children, we may have certain responsibilities to our own children that we don't have to others. So would you say there's a middle way in which we regard all children equally while also acknowledging that there are certain responsibilities we have with our own? Certainly, certainly. This is where with your children, you're probably going to bathe them, you're going to clothe them, you're going to buy them clothes, you're going to feed them three meals a day or whatever schedule you're on. But you can't do that with every single kid in the neighborhood. But while those kids are in your presence, if your children are sitting down for lunch, ah, sure, have a lunch, have a sandwich, have some food. Come on in. You're part of our family. You know, sit down, have some food. So it's more about not like an ongoing basis, but more about when you're in the presence of others, just treat everyone equally. This is how the mind gets to permanence. Because if you're treating your children one way and you're treating other children another way, when you're in the living room all watching a movie, your mind has to figure out who are you talking to and who you're going to treat one way and who you're going to treat another way. And this is very burdensome to the mind. But if you're treating everyone impartially, then you have the freedom to just treat everyone equally. And it doesn't burden the mind to have to figure out, is it my child or is it someone else's child? Is it my responsibility or someone else's responsibility? Well, with that loving kindness and compassion, a child falls down and hurts themselves. Then when they're in your presence and that's happened, then you address it and you take care of them and you clean up their wound, you address it and you do what you need to do. Or if it's really bad and you need to go get their parents, then you do that. But you take action in order to treat them well and be sure that all beings are being treated well and impartial along with the loving kindness and compassion that we talked about. And does the concept of equanimity and treating everyone impartially also apply to ourselves in that we are not treating ourselves in a biased way in favor of others and also vice versa that we're not biased against ourselves and completely sacrificing our own needs for others. Exactly. 100%, James. You know, one of the things that I see people nowadays, I I see that they call it self-deprecating humor. I don't know if I said that right, but I think you guys know what I'm talking about, where somebody will basically joke about themselves, degrading themselves in front of other people in order to get a laugh, right? This to me is not a wise thing to do. An enlightened being wouldn't do that right? There's ways to joke and have a good joke without degrading your own being, because even though it's considered a joke, the mind holds on to that stuff. And that negativity that we project at our own being, even if it's for the sake of humor, it 
affects the mind and we start feeling that way a lot of times so there's ways to joke and have fun without disparaging your own being or disparaging other beings uh, without lying there's ways to joke without lying and these jokes actually tend to be more challenging and it takes more wisdom in order to pull them off but as you learn how to do that they're usually the funnier jokes because it takes more effort and it takes more time to figure out how to joke without disparaging others and without lying it takes a lot of wisdom to be able to do that and when you do people tend to laugh a lot more about those jokes yeah we have to treat ourselves well too james and just like you're saying that it just doesn't make sense to go around and give 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 to everyone else but not be doing things for your own being and taking care of yourself because eventually you're going to be empty you're going to be taking care of everyone else and your gas tank is going to be empty and then what can you do you can't take care of anybody including yourself even though this goes against what you maybe have been taught in the past you need to put yourself first without being selfish which is what we're going to talk about next but you need to learn how to prioritize your own well-being and by doing that it's actually the most loving kind compassionate thing you can be doing for everyone else around you because if you allow your gas tank to become empty and now you're grumpy and harsh and aggressive with everyone around you how is that showing loving kindness and compassion to yourself or to other people but by making yourself a priority and making sure that you're doing the things you need to take care of your own being, then by filling up your gas tank regularly, then you have the gas that you need to take care of other people around you. But once you get empty and you're depleted, you can't take care of anyone, including yourself. So you've got to treat your own being well in addition to treating other people well. It's David, it's like we learned with loving kindness meditation. The first ring is ourself and without having loving kindness for ourselves, it's very difficult to have loving kindness with others. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's how all these teachings connect together. All these teachings are connecting together. This is how the Buddha was just so utterly, completely wise, okay? That you're never going to find anywhere in his teachings where there's a contradiction. You're not gonna see doing loving kindness meditation one way and then when we talk about the Brahma Viharas, talking about it in a different way. All of his teachings are interconnected and there's no contradiction in any part of his teachings whatsoever because they're all working toward the same goal. He taught for 45 years without any contradiction in his teachings whatsoever. Now, before when I was in America, I taught Thai massage for about 10 years. I had contradictions occasionally in those 10 years of teaching because there were things that I discovered in year five that I didn't know in year three, so I kind of contradicted myself sometimes. But once you start teaching these teachings and your mind has gotten to the point where you're able to teach these teachings, you understand them deeply. You'll see that there's absolutely no contradiction in anything the Buddha taught from day one until the day he died because he became fully enlightened first. He focused on his own training, his own mind, became fully enlightened first, fully understood how to actually attain enlightenment, having attained it on his own. So from that point, all of his teachings for 45 years was just teaching what he did. In that six-year journey that he attained enlightenment, for 45 years, he just taught people what he did. How did you attain this mental state? 
over this six-year period. How did you do it? Right? So he just looked inside. He didn't lie. And he just told people what he did in order to attain enlightenment. And by sharing what he actually did to attain enlightenment and had attained it first, there was never any contradictions because he was looking inward and he wasn't lying. So therefore, all of these teachings are all interconnected in a way that they never contradict themselves. Thank you, David. Those are all the questions we have for now. All right. Well, let's move on to something that's not part of the Brahma Viharas, but is something that I included in this chapter because it's so important to your development along this path. I consider it a healthy mental state. And that's why I included it in this chapter. I didn't call this chapter the Brahma Viharas. I called it the Cultivating Healthy Mental States. And then I subtitled it with the four Brahma Viharas. But then I included this extra healthy mental state because it's one that we tend to have a lot of challenges with in the West and in different places. We've become somewhat selfish in the world. We were all taught to share as a child but we have really gotten away from that in our adult life. We tend to be much more selfish and self-centered and holding on to things very tightly. And because of that aspect of our practice, it's going to hold you back from attaining enlightenment if you are selfish, if you're holding on to things too tightly. So just like we taught generosity at different points in time in this program and as part of this path, it's important that you see generosity as a healthy mental state. Even though it's not part of the Brahma Viharas, it is a very important healthy mental state to cultivate. Now, what is generosity? Generosity is the readiness and taking action to frequently give something more than is strictly necessary, like time, effort, or financial support. And putting this together, with loving kindness and compassion and some of these other healthy mental states that we talked about is really important because there's going to be times that in order to practice loving kindness, you're going to have to also be practicing generosity at the same time. You almost can't practice loving kindness without also being generous because you're going to need to give a little bit of time and effort in order to practice loving kindness or in order to practice compassion maybe or in order to practice sympathetic joy or equanimity. You're gonna to need to have this generosity where you're willing to give time, effort, or financial support in certain ways to certain people around you. Maybe sharing your potato chips or sharing a space at the lunch table or sharing a ride if you're on your way somewhere and one of your neighbors or somebody needs a ride. Or like I mentioned, you come outside, you're on your way to work and your neighbor's trash is blown all over the yard. Right? And you just jump in your car and, and bolt off, you know, you can cultivate some wholesome karma there by just going over and spending three minutes, five minutes and helping them pick up some trash. And not because you're looking for anything in return, but just because it's the right thing to do and show this being that lives next to you. You guys are going to be there five, 10, 20 years, or even if you're only going to be there five more weeks. It is wise to create friends in the world rather than create enemies. And oftentimes in the unenlightened mind, we don't see that. We're so busy with our craving, desire, attachments that we're busy fulfilling these selfish desires that we're just on this mission to fulfill our craving, desire, attachments. And we overlook the fact that by just jumping in the car and leaving and our neighbors there picking up trash, 
that really doesn't help us to create friends in the world. Or even just saying some words if you really can't help them, saying, Bob, I would really love to help you. I'm so sorry, I need to get to work. I'm already late and I've been late three times this week, one more time and I'm not gonna have a job, right? So it's not that you have to help every single person who has trash blown across their yard, but at least share some kind words, take some time and effort to apologize that you're not able to help them, right? That would be showing loving kindness and compassion. Because what generosity remedies is this craving, desire, attachment, this holding on, this longing and strong eagerness that the mind has, pursuing our selfish desires and selfishness. If the mind is just constantly pursuing its selfish desires and it sees that every waking moment it needs to be doing something for itself, then you're going to be holding on to things and you're not going to be able to get to enlightenment because you're just busy looking at how to improve your life. You're not interested in mom or dad or brother and sister or neighbor or the person staying in the hotel room next to you. All you're interested in is your own selfish desires. Is my world good? And as long as my world's good, that's all that matters. We can't do that as enlightened beings. We have to be able to observe this interconnectivity between us and other beings. We have to observe that we're on this planet interconnected with billions of people. And one decision that we make affects us, but it also affects others as well. So it's in our best interest to show love and care and compassion and kindness and respect and using some generosity with our time, effort, our financial support to not be selfish and to be able to practice in a way that shares with people. And this is how it spreads throughout the world and throughout your community. You know, if you move into a new place and you get some chocolate for your neighbor who either you just moved in or they just moved in, that starts to spread throughout the community. Not that you're looking for that to happen, not that that's your expectation, but when these kind of things happen and you start making these decisions to be generous and share, then you're going to see that this is going to reciprocate. Just like you're dropping a stone in the water and the waves ripple out, they're also going to ripple back in too. So you don't practice generosity because you're expecting generosity. You practice it because it's the right thing to do. And just know that as you do, it's going to find its way back as you practice this. Because this whole world, it's almost like we're in a log jam with all of us kind of being selfish or having desires and selfishness. There's a lot of that in our world. And what we're doing as part of this path and working towards enlightenment is we're saying, you know what? We're interested in breaking up this log jam in our life. Let me remove this log of selfishness. Let me remove this log of always pursuing my selfish desires and start being generous. And then you take that log out and all these logs start to shift. Your neighbors, your children, your life partner, your coworkers, your parents, your siblings. When you start being generous with people around you, it's going to start shifting all these logs. And that's what you need to do is kind of break up some of this log jam that has been experienced in your life and in the world. And just like the other ones that we talked about, the way that you cultivate this is through mindfulness and through right effort. So wherever you see the mind is selfish or even holding on, I often use 
the analogy of the bag of chips because I remember specifically when I was at a temple one time and I was working on generosity and I popped open a bag of chips and the first thing that came into my mind was, oh, thank goodness I got all these chips. I'm going to enjoy every last one of them. And when I did that, I looked in the bag and I looked and I saw people around me and then I offered chips to everybody. And by the time the bag got all the way around, there was like one chip. And when it got back to me, I was just like, all right, well, whatever. I can always go buy another bag because I just came back from 7-Eleven. What's the big deal if I share all the chips and they're all gone and I only get one when it comes back? Big deal. I just shared with a whole bunch of people and I didn't hold on to these chips. I let them go. And now if I'm interested in having more than just this one chip that's in the bag, I can just go get another bag. There's no big deal. So by practicing generosity, you're recognizing this interconnectivity that you have with all these other beings and you're eliminating this craving, desire, attachment to hold on to things. And it just so happens that the Buddha's teaching, although he has many teachings on generosity, deals with food as well. His teaching here that I like to share because it connects with what my experience was as well, is he says, monks, if beings knew as I know the results of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given, nor would the stain of selfishness obsess them and take root in their mind. Even if it were their last bite, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared it, if there were someone to share it with. But because beings do not know as I know the results of giving and sharing, they eat without having given, the stain of selfishness obsesses them and takes root in their mind. What he's talking about there in terms of beings do not know as I know the results of giving and sharing. What he's talking about is the results of enlightenment. The results of that peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy are the results. And one wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment without giving and sharing. And when you experience the joy of giving, the joy of being able to share something with somebody, even if it's your last bite, that joy is something that produces wholesome mental states in the mind and ultimately helps you get closer and closer to enlightenment. So the results of giving and sharing, along with all this other stuff that the Buddha teaches, is the enlightened mental state the peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So experiencing this joy of giving, then your mind won't have this stain of selfishness and it won't obsess and take root in your mind. And if that's where you are now, it's okay, right? We kind of had the experiences that we've had. We've been brought up the way that we had. We have the conditioning that we have in the mind. But what this whole path is about doing is eliminating the unwholesome and arising the wholesome. So here is a wholesome, healthy mental state that you can start arising in the mind and start sharing with people. Whether it's just a potato chip, whether it's a little bit of time, even just a smile. Just seeing people in an elevator and just smiling at them is a wonderful way to just be generous. Just smiling at people. That kind of stuff becomes very contagious and you will notice that it will produce wholesome results for you. 
as part of developing your practice and eliminating any unwholesome karma or wholesome results by you practicing generosity, even with just a smile, then you're going to notice more people are going to smile at you, right? As you smile and wave at people in your neighborhood, you might be the first person to do that and go out on the street and start doing that regularly with people. But within a matter of a few days, you're going to notice that you're looking down at the ground and you happen to look up and somebody's waving and smiling at you first because you've spread it around the neighborhood, right? Or if you come to the mailbox and there's somebody there and you patient and you're polite and like, hey, Bob, how you doing? And you start being very polite and kind and generous with people. This stuff spreads just like the COVID-19 virus. As fast as COVID-19 spread around this world, generosity and sharing can spread around this world just as fast. And one of the things that enlightened beings are doing is they're focused on their practice, but they understand that by them practicing well, it's going to have an influence on other people. Our goal isn't to change other people. The goal is to change our own mind. All of these healthy mental states are to change our own mind. But by you changing your mind, it's going to influence other people around you. It's going to influence your partners, your children, your family, your relatives, your coworkers, your neighbors. As you start practicing these good, wholesome teachings, you're going to notice that your relationships become more and more smooth and very easy. So this is what I had to share with you guys, and I'll just leave the rest of the class time for any questions that you guys have. Hi, David. Eve explained that we cultivate most of these states through right mindfulness and right effort. So is it accurate to say that rather than cultivating four or five separate states, we're in some sense cultivating them simultaneously? Yes. All of these teachings, including the Eiffel Path and these here, is the more that you understand them all, you're going to employ them at different times. It's almost like having a tool belt. So it's not like the evil path that you have to master right view before you start practicing right intention. And then you have to master right intention before you practice right speech. You actually are learning about all these things at the same time and practicing them all at the same time. You're pulling out, out of your tool belt the tool that you need at a given time. So now that you're aware of selfishness, and selfish desires, which is something that you may not have thought about recently. Wherever you notice selfishness arise, you already got the answer. Cut that off, arise generosity. Wherever you notice anger, hatred, ill will, or annoyance, or irritation, dislike arises, cut that off, you've got the tool, loving kindness. Or wherever you notice that there's a difficult situation happening, you already got the answer, composure mental calmness. Now, it might be challenging for you to do these things, and it probably will be. As you get going, that's what your practice is all about. The more you practice, it'll get easier and easier. But the more you learn about these tools and this tool belt that you've got, you can employ the given tool at the appropriate time, and you're practicing all these things at the appropriate time. Another way that I think about it in terms of not only a tool belt, but also, if you remember the old time equalizers with all the little switches in order to dial in the sound and, and create a really good sound through speaker equipment, you're dialing in all these different switches in order to refine your practice more and more. Where today and maybe for the next three or four days or five, you might be working on right intention or right speech. And you're really tweaking that better and better because you're involved in a lot of conversations. But now maybe you're not around people very much 
and now you're tweaking something else. Maybe you're tweaking your meditation practice. And then you're tweaking something else over here and you kind of tweak these individual switches at different times. But what going through this program is all about, the group learning program and then the Polycanon in English program, is learning where all these switches are, learning what they are, learning what the antidote, learning how to arise them. And then as you go through this program once and you go through it twice and you get some personal guidance and you ask some questions and you move on to the Polycanon in English program, more and more over a few years, you get really proficient because you've heard these things and you've practiced them and you've gotten help and you've dabbled with them and you made mistakes and you tripped over your feet, but then you got up and you got better with it. And then as you ramp your practice up more and more, you'll see that it becomes so effortless and easy, but you are doing all of the stuff at one time. And that's where it can feel a bit difficult when you first get started, because there's all these teachings coming at you. But this is just like a movie. If you watch a movie once, you watch it a second, a third, a fourth time, and you pick up new things. Each time you read the book, each time you go through a class, you pick up new things and you kind of implement new things into your practice. So James, this is your third time essentially going through this program. And I imagine even now being the third time, you're still learning new things because maybe the first time you got like 10% of what was being shared. The second time you got about 30%. Maybe this time you've gotten maybe 40 or 60%. And each time you're picking up and absorbing more and more of the practice, which is strengthening your life practice. But you are doing all these things at one time, but you're employing different tools at different times. Absolutely. I think that's very accurate. I think that each time I went through the course, I've not only learned in a greater extent as far as committing certain things to memory and learning them better in that way, but you simply say things in a different way and you have had your experiences with it and I think it's very valuable to continually go through these teachings and you can learn a lot that way. Yeah, one of the things that I realized is that when I was diving into the Buddhist teachings and reading the Pali Canon regularly, 10, 15, 20 minutes a day, by trickling in the teachings that way, what I noticed is there would be a certain situation that was happening and it wasn't a matter of more than a day or two that I just happened to flip the page in that situation that I was dealing with. Boom, there's the Buddhist teachings exactly how to deal with this or, you know, some other thing like that, that by trickling the teachings into the mind and reading regularly, 10, 15, 20 minutes by meditating, by coming to these classes, it's a, only a matter of time before whatever situation you're dealing with and you're having trouble with that there's going to be something in these teachings that are going to help you. And if you're not seeing that, then there's always the ability to reach out to a teacher for personal guidance and schedule an appointment to do that or put a question in the Facebook group or something. So if you're ever running across a certain challenge, if you're trickling the teachings in like the way that I always suggest, then there's a good chance that you're going to end up in a certain teaching that's going to be directly applicable to whatever challenge you're facing at the present moment. And when there's not, that's where the Facebook group, private message, asking a question in class, or reaching out for personal guidance is always good because you can talk about the specific situation you're having and ask for specific guidance around that. Yes, I, I think that in our society, we have this in school and such, we 
learn the basic information and, and then we move on to advanced information and it just kind of works like that but I think with these teachings there is a lifetime of wisdom simply in the basic teachings that we're learning in the introductory course and while there may be value in learning more advanced ones as we learn these basic ones I think that there's no end to the amount of wisdom that we can acquire just from from these basic teachings. I agree with that James and I would never say that learning the Buddhist teachings are easy. I would never say that. But I also would never say that they're difficult either. I think we make it difficult sometimes for ourselves. And I think it can feel difficult sometimes when we put a lot of stress and burden on us. But if we think about this as a long-term pursuit and each class session, each time we read a book, each time we listen to a podcast or a video, we're going to pick up one, two, or three tidbits along the way. And if we think about it that way and we just keep this trickle effect happening and we just keep picking up one, two, three tidbits every single time, then eventually that culminates into a whole lot of wisdom that we can apply on a readily basis day by day. And relieving that pressure of having to be perfect today is outstanding because then it doesn't feel so difficult. I wouldn't say the Buddhist teachings are easy, but there's definitely kind of this hump. You know, you get through like the first group learning program, the first six or seven months of this program, and then maybe you take it again, you repeat it again. That second time through, it's just gonna feel so much different and so much easier to absorb the teachings where the first time it might've been a bit more challenging, but the second time through, it's just a bit easier and easier still not easy but easier and the way that you accomplish that is by not putting a burden on yourself to be perfect today because the only one who's really truly perfect is a fully perfectly enlightened buddha that person is going to be completely perfect from top to bottom left to right backwards and forwards you're never going to see a deviation of their practice but everyone else all the way up until enlightenment you're going to be making mistakes and you're going to be tripping over your feet and when you do those are opportunities to learn and mistakes can either degrade you and make you feel horrible or you can say you know what i'm actually pleased that i made that mistake because now i get opportunity to learn something let me learn right you can embrace the mistake Uh, You can embrace the fact that you didn't use right speech with your mother-in-law or your father-in-law or your brother or your sister. You can embrace that and be like, you know what? Yeah, I got really angry with them and that means I'm attached to them or I'm attached to this, that, and the other thing. And they helped me to uncover that. Thank goodness. I'm thinking about Donnie with his client that he talked about the other day, right? Like they're like a little tea for you even though there's some irritation and maybe some frustration there, like they taught you a little something that, hey, you've got a little bit of a hang up here that you need to address. And those are really beneficial moments. So rather than putting pressure on ourselves to be perfect, when we see that our mind does become irritated or it does become frustrated, embrace that and, and look at it and analyze that. Like we talked about last week, analyze the mind and say, what is the craving desire attachments here that are causing this discontentedness because I'm ready to get rid of those. And as soon as I discover what they are, I can eradicate them from the mind and then I'll never feel that discontentedness ever again. So when you're having these situations where you're feeling like there was a misstep in your practice, just embrace it and look at it as a way to improve and strengthen your practice so that you'll be able to learn something and gain some benefit from it. 
it seems like it's also important to not become attached to our progress on the path to the point that we can't make mistakes and see that as a learning experience rather than a failure that leads us into discontentedness. Would you say that's accurate? Yes, because, you know, the way that some of us have been brought up in particular traditions is, you know, here's everything that we believe, here's all the rules, and we expect everyone to be perfect right away. And if you're not perfect, then you have caused grave problems, and now we're going to judge you because of that, right? And that's a really difficult way to approach improving someone's life. Because you can't look at a big doctrine of rules to follow and immediately do that. It's just not possible. And you can't permanently follow rules. But you can learn a set of teachings. You can learn a methodology. You can learn a better way of life. And then gradually navigate that, becoming more and more proficient at it and allowing for situations where you haven't practiced it as well as you would have liked to and as you navigate this aspect of teachings this collection of teachings this better way of life as you navigate that and ramp your practice up more and more it'll become more and more refined the way that i think about this is like a sculpture if you have a big piece of wood a big log and you're going to make this beautiful sculpture this very intricate detailed sculpture when you first get that hunk of wood, you're probably going to take an axe or a hatchet. You're going to start chucking off a bunch of big pieces of wood off of that, that log in order to get it down to a manageable size. So when you first learned the Eightfold Path, you might have had to chuck off something with right speech, right? Maybe you were interrupting people or maybe you were speaking harsh and you had to chuck that off. Or maybe with right action, maybe you were... Uh, killing living beings or maybe you were having sexual misconduct or maybe you were stealing and you had to chuck that off but then as you whittle this down you bring out these different tools at different times and you get down to a finer and finer refined sculpture of wood and then eventually you're using like a little exacto knife a little razor blade even the side of the edge of a razor blade to go in and put the eyelashes on this sculpture and that's what you're doing when you're learning the Buddhist teachings. When you initially get into them, there's these big hunks of wood that you're chucking off, realizing that you're going about this whole life in a way that's haphazard and is not leading to good results. But then as you get six months, a year into this practice and you've chucked away a lot of the big pieces of wood, you get down into the refinement of your practice what again exactly is gentle speech? Can you just give me like some real clarity on that? Or what does it mean to talk blamelessly? Or what is this enlightenment factor of investigation exactly? Or what is this enlightenment factor of energy? You kind of go in there with some real fine tooth tools to really refine your practice. And that's the way that someone really develops is not by hearing a bunch of rules following a bunch of beliefs, clicking your fingers and doing all that stuff now or else you're a bad person. Instead, you've got to gradually ramp up to learn these teachings, gradually implement them, gradually get help with implementing them, and then keep cycling that over and over and over until you get closer and closer to this ideal sculpture 
that you now are practicing in a way that is leading to the complete peacefulness of mind where you've brought the mind to the middle and you've refined it so well that you never fall away from those teachings. You never fall away from that middle way because it's just so ingrained in the mind about how to practice these teachings. It's just effortless. We were just speaking about generosity, David, and you've shown a lot of generosity with the class through sharing your time and sharing the teachings. And I was wondering, are there any ways we can return that generosity back to you? Well, the thing that I really feel is the thing that I'm interested in is seeing as many people learn and practice the teachings as possible. That's the most ideal. That's the the best thing, the, the best respect, the most gratitude you could ever give to a teacher is that you make their time that they invest, the effort, the energy that they invest, the financial resources that I invest, that if you take in the teachings and you learn them and you practice them and you're getting results with them, that's the best, most absolute respectful and generous thing I feel that you could ever do to show that you're appreciative of the time, effort, energy, and resources that I put into sharing these teachings. Because that shows that you're really serious about your practice, not holding it so tight, but you're at least consistent. You're uh, determined, you're dedicated, you're diligent in your studies. That's the best thing I think that you could ever offer to any teacher, whether it's about Buddhism or whether it's about learning a foreign language or learning a new trade or a new skill is show the teacher that their time, effort, energy, and resources are worthwhile. So that would be the first one. Beyond that, of course, there's a lot of resources that are involved in sharing these teachings, whether it's computers or lighting or paying for Zoom or paying for the live streaming software or paying for all the things that I need to take care of in order to actually live and function and sustain life in this world. So yes, donations are helpful if people would like to do that at some point, and it helps you too to practice generosity. But that's up to you when or if you ever choose to do that. You won't hear me asking for it, but it is part of your practice to be able to do that. And then if you have time or effort or energy that you would like to contribute, if you have some time to help out with some things, you could always let me know at different times that you have, you know, two hours a week or an hour a week or maybe you're in between jobs and you're going to be off for two months and you feel like you have some time and you would like to help out with something. You can always reach out to me individually and ask if there's something that you can help with, with your time and effort and energy, because now for the next several months and years, I'm going to be working on some projects with some books in order to release those. And there's always some proofreading that could be used or uh, some other things like this, or even moderating. Like I know you guys, James, Bossom, and Manal, you guys are really kind to share your time, effort, and energy to moderate these classes. And it's always nice to have additional moderators to help you guys. So all of these things are ways that we can contribute as a community, because while David's the one who's teaching and putting the classes together and hosting them, it's really our entire community working together that we're able to offer these books to the community. That's why if you see the books that I write, I don't put my name on the cover of any of the books. 
I don't do that because they're not my books. They don't belong to me. These are books that we are all contributing to in one way or another. We're all contributing to this. Or these classes. These classes are our community classes. It's my responsibility. It's my role to share the teachings and be the teacher. But these classes happen not just because of David. They happen because of David, because of Manal, because of James, Bassam, Miranda, Donna, Josh, Donnie, Judith, all of you guys that are participating in these classes. And those of you watching over live stream or those of you on the podcast that I never even know your name necessarily because you're just listening and there's no way for me to know your name. All of us are contributing to creating a community where people can access teachings gain understanding, and then practice and improve the condition of their life practice. So there's all these different ways that people could help out with the primary one being learning and practicing the teachings to improve your life practice. And then from there, anything else that you could potentially offer at any given time, then whenever you're able or willing to do that, then just let me know or just offer it on your own. And that would be very kind and generous of you well thank you david thank you for once again sharing the teachings with us and that's all the questions that we have for today all right well this was a really interesting class as i think they all are that we're talking about these four brahma viharas as well as this fifth mental state of generosity because they're so important and being able to develop your life practice without any of these five that we talked about. If there was just one that you didn't practice, the mind wouldn't be enlightened. Even something like sympathetic joy, because if you didn't practice that, there would still be envy. There would still be jealousy. There would still be a bit of pride there. And that's going to inhibit somebody from attaining enlightenment. So the way that the Buddha taught is he only ever taught those things that lead to enlightenment. One of the things that he said is he said the wisdom that he acquired during his awakening, during his enlightenment, was represented by all the leaves and all of the trees of the forest. And he reached down and he picked up a few leaves in his hands and he showed them to his students. And he said, these few leaves are the only leaves that I'm going to teach you. Even though the wisdom that I've acquired is represented by all these leaves, in the trees overhead in the forest. These few leaves in my hands are the only ones that you actually need in order to awaken the mind. Well, if you learn all of those leaves, the mind is going to awaken. But if you left off one of those leaves, like sympathetic joy, for example, or compassion or equanimity, the mind's not gonna move to enlightenment. So as you learn this, Learn from this class, listen back to the class at different times, learn in the book, take this program again, one, two, three times uh, if you need to, because you're going to learn something new each time because James will tell you that he hasn't been in two classes that were exactly the same. And you probably know that too, all of you, because of impermanence. There's no two classes that are exactly the same, even though it's the same title, even though it's the same chapter. So each time you're going to learn and pick up new things and these healthy mental states are vitally important in order to cultivate the mind, in order to move it closer and closer to enlightenment, eliminating the unwholesome qualities 
and arising these wholesome qualities, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, and generosity. They're all very, very important. Next week, we've got a super interesting topic and one that feels wonderful to be able to share with you guys. In chapter 15, it's titled True Love, Love Without Attachment. This is a really important teaching for household practitioners. There are some people that will tell you that love is an attachment. And in order to attain enlightenment, you can't have love for people. This is not true. You need to learn how to have love without attachment. The Buddha's teachings were not devoid of love. He had love all throughout his teachings. So what it comes down to is not eliminating love in our life. It's understanding how to practice true love. The way that the unenlightened mind understands love is oftentimes it associates pain, misery, heartache with love. But that's actually not love. There might be love in there, but love doesn't cause pain. Love doesn't cause misery. Love is very different than what we might think about it in the unenlightened state. It's the craving, desire, attachment that's causing the misery and the pain. The love is something completely different, and I call it true love. Because once you understand true love, and you're able to practice this in your relationships, you won't ever experience discontentedness in your relationships ever again. You won't experience the roughness, the harshness, the arguing between partners or between your children. And those things happen now because there's craving, desire, attachment. And as I've shared, none of these teachings are about you've done anything wrong. If you're having arguments with your partner, if you're having arguments with your children, that's completely normal for someone who isn't practicing true love. There's love in there. For sure there's love in there. You wouldn't be with the people that you're around if you didn't have love. But the problem is, is that this craving desire attachment is tainting the love and it's making it hard for you to experience true love and it's making it hard for the people around you to feel the true love because the craving desire attachment is polluting the true love. So what we're going to do next week is I'm going to make it very clear to you what is craving desire attachment and what is true love. Because once we move this craving desire attachment out of the way and you bring forth the true love, now you can love without it ever hurting you ever again. Because love isn't what's hurting you. It's the craving desire attachment that's hurting you. The love doesn't hurt. The love is marvelous. The love is wonderful. But it's being tainted with this craving desire attachment. So what next week is all about on Sunday is helping you to clearly see the craving desire attachment that exists in relationships and helping you get in touch with that true love so that you can practice it and never experience arguments and discontentedness in your relationships ever again. Now, I'm going to teach it next week, but it doesn't mean you're going to snap your fingers and all the arguments are going to disappear. It's going to take time for you to build up to that. But that whole process of eliminating your arguments in eliminating the roughness and harshness in your relationships starts with the intellectual learning of what is true love and how to love without attachment. 
So once you start learning that and then you're able to start practicing it and you start getting help with it, you'll have the most rewarding, most successful relationships ever. Because until you learn true love, relationships are oftentimes a struggle. They're oftentimes feel very difficult and challenging to be in relationships with a life partner or with children or parents or siblings or people around you, even coworkers and customers and clients. It can be a real struggle if you're not practicing true love. So between now and then, if you can read that chapter, it will help you. Because this week's chapter 14 is actually quite small. It's only like two pages. Next week's chapter is a little bit longer, but it has a lot of details in it. So if you can read that one before coming to class, you'll get a lot more benefit out of the class itself on Sunday. And it's going to really, really help you in your personal and your professional relationships. And then this Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation in terms of practicing that and then opening up to any questions that you guys have about this path. And then, of course, you guys know that we have our Saturday Poly Canon in English program that happens each Saturday. That's going to be restarting at the beginning of August. So if you're going to be interested to move into that program and maybe even do both of these together, this program and that program, which some students do, that program is going to be restarting in August. So you're all welcome to join that program on Saturday as well. So thank you all for joining. Thank you for your wonderful questions. Thank you for being diligent in your studies. Thank you for continuing to stay dedicated and determined and diligent to this path. Because as you do, it's only going to improve your life. Those people close to you and all of humanity is just going to improve and get better and better and better. So thank you. I appreciate all your hard work. And just remember, always treat everyone polite, kind, friendly and respectful and as long as you're doing that you're going to be creating wholesome outcomes wholesome results wholesome karma so i'll see you in a future class thank you so much have a lovely day thank you for listening to this podcast to provide support for this podcast visit patreon.com forward slash support buddha to access more teachings visit buddhadailywisdom.com there, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.